There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. This week, we've got the latest storm and stress from the 2016 presidential race. The Associated Press rocked the Clinton campaign's world this week after they released a report detailing new concerns about the Clinton Foundation, alleging that foundation donors got preferential access and treatment from Hillary Clinton's State Department. Over in the Trump campaign, they are working hard at the pivot they promised to make for months. And the most interesting thing that's emerged is that on the reality television host's signature issue, his draconian approach to immigration, Trump no longer seems to know what he either believes or says. Did Donald Trump mean it when he said his Republican rivals were soft on immigration? And if so, why does he suddenly seem to prefer the immigration policies of low-energy Jeb Bush? Meanwhile, a pharmaceutical company called Mylan is under fire this week after they raised the prices of their EpiPens. EpiPens are a device used by the severely allergic to prevent fatal allergy attacks. And Mylan raised the prices by 400%. Consumers are angry, as are members of Congress, who are demanding that Mylan reverse course and lower their prices. You know, if only that same Congress hadn't continually made policy decisions that allowed for these monopolistic practices in the first place. Finally, for some third-party perspective on our presidential race, we welcome back our favorite Bernie Sanders supporter, the always effervescent Tim Black of The Tim Black Show. We'll ask him if Clinton's managed to close the deal with him at all, and whether or not folks like him are having an impact on Democratic Party policies at all. I'm Jason Lincolns with The Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, and Elise Foley. Here's what happened first. everybody, welcome back to another edition of So That Happened, your podcast that digests and then regurgitates all of the pain in the world of politics so that you can more easily masticate it. Uh, I'm Jason Lickinson, the editor of Eat the Press, and we have a doozy of a show today, and we're going to kick things off by attempting to work our way through a web of confusion that has recently engulfed the 2016 race. And joining us to talk about this is Arthur Delaney. Hi. He's always here. And also here as a special guest is our pal Elise Foley. Woohoo! Yes, Elise, you are here to help us. Because you are an immigration reporter, among other things. I know you wear many hats and many... That's my main hat. Your main hat. Many have hats and some fascinators. <laughs> this is my biggest hat. This is your biggest hat. And you have had to, I guess, pull a lot of rabbits out of that hat this week because... This hat analogy is working. Yeah, so far expected. so good. It's going gonna, it's gonna to derail at some point. So let's enjoy it while we're still, we're still doing it. Ten-gallon hat. <laughs> yes. Um, Donald Trump... Um, has recently begun the, I think, 37th pivot of his campaign. And this one has had kind of a laser focus on immigration, which, of course, in many ways is raison d'etre for the whole thing. He seems to have said a bunch of things that tend to contradict themselves this week. Am I crazy for thinking that? You are not crazy for thinking that. (laughs) I think 
the as summary would be that he's been saying things that contradict himself for ages, um, and now it's finally sort of coming out because he's supposedly going to put out some sort of more clear policy proposals. And so now he's sort of having to backpedal on some of the stuff that he said before and also claim that he's not changing his mind at all, which is a fun thing that politicians always do. Well, where where did it start? It started sometime last year. Was it the wall? Or yeah, he, I mean, he started with the wall, his very first um, speech, and he talked then about people crossing the border or are terrible rapists, criminals, etc. Mexicans specifically are those things, according to him. And But then he started fairly soon saying that you have to get them all out, referring to undocumented people. He said that, yeah, we'll be rounding them up. Oh, are you going to send, you know, he was asked, are you going to send children to? And he said, yeah, we have to send the whole family. So he was pretty clear that he wanted every undocumented person to leave. He said some of them could come back. Now, all of a sudden, it sounds like he is not going to propose that you have to deport everyone. I think he's also not going to propose that you should, you know, allow people to stay explicitly by letting them stay legally, but perhaps just allow them to stay in this kind of hazy gray area that they're staying in right now. And so there's a Trump deportation force that he's stipulated will be in charge of all of this. Yes. He said that there was going to be, then this weekend, his campaign ma- manager, uh, Kellyanne Con- Conway. 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 Just Conway. Yeah. Sorry about that. Um, she was on TV and was asked about the deportation force, and she said, to be determined. So that was one of the things that sort of set off the speculation that he's about to do or is currently doing this massive flip-flop. There's another part, though, which is also the uh, the Muslim ban. Yes, which I think uh, he I he actually band too. put this on a piece of paper in December. I think. Yeah, this was not an off the cuff remark when he first proposed right. it. They put out a statement. Right, level of serious one hundred because it's written on paper, and he like had the piece of paper up at his lectern and said, "We will have a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the country from country." And but, but he's, it he's, has, he's pivoted on that one. Though. Yeah, yeah. These, these were later pivots. Yes. Yeah, so so later he said, actually, it'll be from countries compromised by terrorism. And it's like, okay, what what does that mean? Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And I think what it means to him is Muslim countries. He just isn't saying that anymore. Uh, But then it was kind of funny. I know he went on TV and said, actually, he was expanding it. Um, But then, so it's kind of been trying to play it both ways, you know, not not say he's shrinking it, but. So here's one theory. Here's one theory, and maybe I'm crazy, or maybe this is so obvious that I should just accept it, but is one possibility that Donald Trump is uh, attempting to massage his massage his positions when he's in discussions with, say, elite reporters or audiences of these, you know, those so-called centrist people that he needs to reach in order to move past this, like, sort of low 30s, high 30s, low 40s ceiling he's been at at the polls, while at the same time reserving the right whenever he's at a rally, let's say, to uh, paper back over those milder comments and say, I'm just as ruthless as I ever was, in the hopes that he keeps his core supporters at home while bringing new people on. Is that part of what's going on? Because it seems to me like it is some, in some ways a con. You know, I've either lied to the people who supported me from the outset or I'm lying to more centrist minded people now. I think that that is a 
legitimate theory. I have another theory um, that I'll it. offer, which is that Donald Trump's understanding of the details of immigration enforcement policy was right. never very sophisticated. Okay. So he made a lot of comments like, round them all up, deport everybody. Now he is, uh, you know, has these people working for him who know a lot more about things. Most people who actually know a lot about immigration policy would never say that you're going to deport 11 million people in two years because that's just not Possible. practical. Yeah. I mean, even if you think that it's the right thing to do, it's not you're, you're not going to do it. It's just not going to happen. So I think that what happened is he made all these statements. Now he is uh, getting kind of clued in, perhaps, or, you know, people are telling him that it's it's not going to work. And so now he's. But I have, a, what I he have a third theory. Yeah. What's your third theory? Let's just stack up the theories, man. That's what I'm My all about. My theory is that because he's just flat out losing right now, losing bad, causing red states to turn blue, that yeah, he's right. scrambling to moderate his past immigration positions that the, that the pace of pivoting has increased and the number of uh changes and caveats ha- has increased in the last 2 weeks yeah and i mean on immigration all of his you know hardline supporters a lot of them cheer and cheer about you know deport them all but polling shows that most even republicans think that there should be some way for undocumented people who have been here a long time to stay so it's it's not a stupid pivot if it's if that's what he's trying to do. I have to say though, there's there's part of it that kind of like goes against the sort of central claim of his candidacy in the first place. The whole I alone can solve thing. You know, he positioned himself as a guy who was by several degrees smarter and better and more prepared to be president than any of the stupid losers who currently live in Washington D.C. And now it seems that most of what's driving his softening of positions are that he's listening to the fucking stupid losers he decried in the first place. Um, is Are we witnessing consultitis finally take root in the Trump camp? Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. I don't know if I have that much to add to that. I think that that is true. You know what that, that sounds like true. to me? It sounds like... Hypocrisy alert. There we go. Yes. I think that's the very first time we ever had a hypocrisy alert on the show. Which hypocrisy is un- alert. Which is unusual. Unusual since I sit next to you and you issue the hypocrisy alert all the time. Hypocrisy not, alert. Not directed at me, but at <laughs> other people. Um, the other thing the other thing I think people have noticed is that he may be sort of like staking out a unique position where uh, it's all about the wall now. It's all about the wall. And um, I forget who wrote this. I think it was Jonathan Chait said that, ironically, what Donald Trump is proposing, uh, if he backs off mass deportation and goes solely at securing the southern border, that he's really just the candidate of the status quo on that in that regard. Because that's always been the sort of extant promise laid before policymakers. We're going to have some path to citizenship that's reasonable, but the trade-off is you've got to give – Republicans the opportunity to build a lot of security theater um, on the southern border to sort of satisfy their, well, not just satisfy their, I guess their desires, but satisfy a lot of what their constituents tell them they want. Yeah, I mean, that's what happened in 2013 when the Senate passed that big immigration reform bill. It had a path to citizenship, but then it also had just like this massive ramp up of border security that even the Republicans, some of them said was overkill, but they wanted it anyway. Most of, most of these debates are really just the chicken egg thing. What comes first, the path or the security, right? Or or 
just ramp up the border and do nothing. I mean, yeah. there's not there's not necessarily a combination there. Also, in the past week, didn't Trump or one of his subordinates explicitly say, yeah, we just want to deport uh, the criminals? And, and it was like, wow, that's exactly what we're doing. That's even, the current they, policy. They even praised Barack Obama's deportation policy, which is not it's, something it's unreal. I mean, oh, that Republicans should say out loud. Yeah, Donald Trump said in the same interview the other day that actually Obama's deported huge numbers of people. And then he also said, "Well, we're not doing anything." It's like you gotta, you gotta pick. Yeah, what's going? <laughs> what are this, we? What's Obama doing? This Nothing or is, too much is or over. a lot. I think it's over. I think that I think that Donald Trump figures he doesn't have to pick. He may be really, literally attempting to have everything both ways and just see if he can like turn out votes that he desperately needs. He, I mean, he's been doing that for a while, and it seems to have. have- it's worked during the primaries. Worked for a while yeah. and now isn't anymore. But yeah, I mean, trying to have it both ways seems to be his thing. All right. Well, I think we're going to probably have more perambulations on the immigration issue going forward. So we'll have reason to have Elise back on to soothe their frayed nerves and calm us down and explain what is happening. So thanks for that. You're welcome. I'll keep my hat. I'm ready. sorry I yelled so much today. No, it's okay. No, you didn't. That's all right, Arthur. That's all right, Arthur. And yeah, th- definitely thanks Thanks for like landing the uh, the hat callback because I forgot about that. <laughs> I'm glad to have someone more conscientious than me here podcasting with us. Okay, well, we have a very nice show. It's a very nice show. It's a pleasant and dignified show where we talk about politics with a lot of professionalism and dignity, and you want to stick around and listen to that, right? So don't move at all. Don't press stop. We'll be right back. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. So, hey, everybody. I have Elise fully back with me. What's up? So, literally, hours after we recorded the segment, Donald Trump went out and... Changed his immigration policies again. Policies, tone, rhetoric. unclear, rhetoric, rhetoric yeah, for sure. It's still super unclear. So unclear. But it seemed to me... But it's an update. It, it is an update. And God knows we're going to finish recording this and tomorrow it's going to change again. But it, it really seemed to me at least that in his uh, appearance on uh, Wednesday evening that um, Donald Trump really seemed to be now suddenly talking about immigration and immigration reform in the way that his vanquished primary rivals did. 
in arguing against him. He sounded like Marco Rubio. He sounded like Jeb Bush, low energy Jeb Bush. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I think the talking points he was using were certainly really similar. I mean, the, all week he's been talking about we are going to get the criminals out so fast. We're, you know, then we're going to figure out what to do. I, I mean, those are not controversial uh, policy positions. Most pro reform people will talk about oh, you have to deport criminals and then we'll figure out something to do with undocumented immigrants. Now he's sort of saying that same thing instead of deport them all. And it's it's totally the same rhetoric. I would say policy-wise, I think it's probably going to be very different. So I, I don't think it's fair. I, I don't think it's fair to like Jeb Bush to say that Donald Trump and Jeb Bush are the same. Um, but it is striking the way he's talking about it, his, how similar it is. His spokeswoman, Christina Pearson, literally said, the policy hasn't changed. He's just using different words. I mean, yeah, Which, that's just like he he's lying it now seemed, or it, was before. It seems <laughs> insane that we're even having to contend with this. Yeah, I mean, I find this whole thing very frustrating because we're having to parse a bunch of words and not have, you know, any any policy. One of the things last night uh, that he the way he spoke about it was a lot of it wasn't really declarative. It was just questions. He was polling the crowd and he said, do you think we should do this? <laughs> uh, and then do you think that maybe for somebody who's been here 25 years and they haven't done anything wrong, maybe we should do this sort of presenting that opening. And I think the fact that he presented that opening is maybe for justification in the future to say, look, this is what the people want. Uh, at the same time, I think we should, at the time of this recording, he has not yet said that he wants legal status for undocumented people. Fair, fair, Check fair. HuffingtonPost.com. Yeah, for, for, for the continuing for updates on this, I'll say really hilariously, last night, Ann Coulter was having her uh, book release party for her new book in Trump We Trust. And one Hilarious of the things, timing. Yes. One of the things she says in this book is that she literally says Trump can be forgiven anything except changing his position on immigration reform. And last night on Twitter, she kind of freaked out because she, what she heard Trump saying was that I support amnesty and in the way that Ann Coulter thinks of things as amnesty. Right. I mean, yeah, she thinks of almost anything as amnesty. <clears throat> I think, I believe though that she's uh, coming around and trying to figure out the right way to defend him, stay on the Trump train, it, it as must, it were. It must be super fun to have to go through that convoluted process. If it's fun for us to have to cover <laughs> it, I don't even know how we would begin to do, like, just a timeline of Trump's, like, utterations on immigration. It I'm, be, I'm trying. I've uh, been trying. <clears throat> well, I wish you all the luck in the world. <laughs> Let me know if I can help, okay? I will. Yeah. All right, cool. We'll be here all, all night. <clears throat> all right, so that's the, the up-to-the-minute update on Trump's immigration policies. They will change probably the minute we leave the studio. So sorry about that. It's not our fault. We'll be right back. Welcome once again, and uh, we have with us Arthur Delaney. Hey, and Zachary Carter. Hello. How you guys doing? You know, I'm uh, sort of waking up from my it's a tent, uh, right? You know, place yep. where I live uh, and in sleep is a tent yep. in the studio, so it's I'm a, good. That's yeah. not that's not true. Important callback. Um, the Clinton Foundation. 
is let's stipulate a couple things before we start talking about the Clinton Foundation, which has been uh, the target of new scrutiny and deserved scrutiny, I feel. Um, but let's stipulate a couple things. Obviously, uh, running a charitable foundation is the sort of thing that you don't normally you you normally say that's a that's a fine thing for an ex president like Bill Clinton to do. He cultivated a lot of contacts around the world. Uh, he made a lot of friends. He could possibly do a lot of good. Blah, blah, blah. Let's also say about the Clinton Foundation that the kind of agencies that govern and and regulate and and administer grades on charitable foundations like Charity Navigator, they've all said that the Clinton Foundation is a good charity. That said. However. So in other words, in other words, in other words, they give money to poor people. People have received mosquito netting and the like, and it's not some kind of like scam charity like a Wyclef Jean Haiti thing uh, where it's like money going to like a few people and it never arrives where, it, where, where, where it's supposed to land. However, Bill Clinton's wife was a secretary of state and is running for president. And so it is a very weird thing to exist when everyone, everyone, everyone knew at the founding of the Clinton Foundation that Hillary Clinton would not would run for president in this cycle and be secretary of state. And she was the top diplomat for yes. the American government for, yes. for years. And I feel like we have had we have had Zephyr teach out on the show numerous times. And I feel like we kind of owe it to her and to our listeners to sort of apply the Zephyr teach out standard of legal corruption, which is to say that any arrangement that even appears to be the kind of thing that might facilitate corruption is in and of itself bad for democracy. If I got any oh, that, of that wrong, that's not a. I mean, that is this. Even, is, even in the law, the appearance of. If, and by the way, this is not just Zephyr's. This is not just Zephyr's opinion basic. on that. This is yeah. found. So, found Hundred yeah. years of anti-corruption. Right. Thinking it can't look that. bad. It Go, goes back to Louis Brandeis before he was even on the Supreme Court. Yes. So the Clinton Foundation. What the. What should we? It's, what it's should misleading we to call this? the Clinton Foundation a charity. The Clinton Foundation does a lot of good work, but it is still a political organization. It is a global political organization, and if you think that the dictators and oppressive regimes that are giving millions of dollars to the Clinton Foundation are doing so because they think it is the most efficient way to alleviate poverty in the developing world. I think you are out of your damn mind. I agree. Uh, there's a reason why these people give money to to the foundation, and the fact that the Clinton uh, uh, campaign right now is saying that that they will they will divorce themselves from the agency if she is president uh, for the agency. Sorry, I, this is how much I don't think it should be considered a charity for, from uh, the, the foundation if she is president. Reveals that there's something that everybody now acknowledges was fishy about her being the top diplomat for the United States government while this foundation was still accepting donations from people this week. The bombshell story was from the Associated Press in which they, you know, counted up people who'd had meetings with Clinton and found that, like, half of a certain subcategory of people who'd had these meetings yes. had also given money and to the just, Clinton Foundation. Just to be specific, the AP has taken some heat, and I think perhaps rightly, for failing to properly categorize the denominator of the people they were talking about as a subcategory. Right. Uh, their initial headline read that literally a percentage of everyone Clinton had met with had donated money to the Clinton Foundation. Right. So, to be fair, within the story, they were quite transparent. They were transparent within yeah, the story. I thought, but I thought this was really... used, to, uh, used against the story unfairly, and the people like criticizing the story are, saying, are essentially saying, 
what elites I'm, say, which is that look, you don't understand how I'm diplomats I'm work. Only, I'm only speaking as a guy criticizing the packaging of the story that yeah. they could have done a better job and not taken on a little bit of water because the story's good. Yeah. And good this, point. what they've pointed out is good, but they need to get there. They need to properly everyone. It's an editorial. It's an it's the editorial mission is to properly define terms and define them quickly in a piece so readers get it and so that misinformation does not get construed. And that's been a problem with the story. But it's really, to my mind, the only problem with the story. Half of the private citizens who met with Clinton in this subcategory of meetings and schedules that the AP was able to obtain, which, by the way, they had to sue the federal government to get that information. Correct. Uh, because they don't, the State Department doesn't just disclose who they meet with. Um, Within that category of private citizens, half of them were Clinton Foundation donors. That yeah. looks terrible. There you go. There it you looks go. terrible. Excellent summation, Zach. It and, does, and it does look terrible. And so, what you're seeing from Clinton's defenders in, um, which is, it's quickly, there's quickly becoming this sort of like weird DNC Breitbart. Um, it's become a Rorschach test. Yeah, that, that, that's happening where people are like, okay, well, we we cannot prove that Hillary Clinton took five hundred thousand dollars in cash from this person and then agreed in her heart of hearts that while she had never wanted to do a corrupt thing before, she would now do the corrupt thing because she had the $500,000 in, in, in cash in an envelope. That's not the way the Democratic Party has thought about corruption for 100 years. Yeah, correct. But now we see all of these Democratic Party partisans saying, oh, oh, essentially the logic of the Citizens United Supreme Court decision from 2010, where if you cannot demonstrate an explicit quid pro quo between the giving of cash and the execution of a deed, that, it, it, that, that there is no corruption and going on. And we get on. back to what Zephyr's been talking about, by the way, all along, <laughs> which is that we've, we've defined down the idea of political corruption into something that's so rare and remote and difficult to prove in itself that we're letting all kinds of things just fly oh, like, under their butt. Like it has to be a, uh, a crumpled up paper bag with three Stuffed different grease stains on yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. With the fingerprints of a dictator stained in the blood of the innocents who they to, strangled you, with you. You, you have know? to construct a TikTok <laughs> by which money changed hands and a deed was executed almost immediately and it's got to be knowing and intentional, blah, blah, blah. But look, the simple look, fact of the matter is like right off the bat, with this, what we see in the instance of the Clinton Foundation is that money money talks and it and gets it, and you, it helps access. you access get, get access yeah, yeah and this is not access that ordinary people enjoy uh, there I can't go to the State Department with with my desperate need and and get them to listen to me now if I had what, what what I've learned is that if I had made a significant donation to the Clinton Foundation I may have had an outside shot at that during her tenure. And that is, even if I don't get quid pro quo on the outside, I still get a political benefit from having money and access. No, what's so awkward and weird about this story is that there's the the uh, you want to uh, equate it to something on the other side, naturally, if you're a journalist, and there's the like Trump University scams and all that, <laughs> which this is not like at all. No, it's not. No. And totally it can't, different and it kind can't, of scam. And it can't be. The, one of the reasons it can't be is because Donald Trump really was does, did not cultivate the kind of political influence that Hillary and Bill Clinton did during their lifetimes. Donald Trump is a small player in this world. All of his scams are sweet, generous, and they popped out of his fucking head. He didn't traipse across the world trying to cultivate the, the, the attention of elites and promising to do them favors. In fact, he was pretty bad at it when he was trying when, – when other people were going into Russia. Russia to build fancy hotels. Donald Trump failed to to 
to really make no, our... I had more in mind the fact that he just built people out of their money. Yeah, I mean, it's D- like, Donald Trump is more like a shady payday lender, yeah, and, a and the Clinton Foundation artist. is more like a too-big-to-fail Wall Street bank. But I mean, I think, just, I just before, we, before we wrap, though... Um, if we if there's no like legit quid pro quo, what are some of the examples that people have cited as as de facto problems that Clinton now faces? Look, uh, it's just the the quid pro quo question. The AP story is not the first time people have found problems with the Clinton. Foundation, no, absolutely not. Okay? Yeah. Last year, the New York Times did an excellent investigation in which they found that Bill Clinton himself had been paid $500,000 to give a speech and the foundation had received millions of dollars by interests that were Russian interests that were trying to acquire American uranium. And the State Department was one of several agencies that signed off on this Russian uh, effort to acquire a fifth of the American uranium stock. Now, uranium is used for nuclear weapons, okay? Was this because Hillary Clinton was fundamentally corrupt and she just saw that, oh, they're going to the Russians are going to pay Bill half a million dollars and therefore we should give them all of our uranium? Was this because there was, you know, were national security ideas that were floating around at the time that said we should be nice to the Russians and give them stuff that is used to make nuclear weapons? I don't know. But there should you should not be in a position to have to ask those types of questions. It is it is absolutely outrageous that there are people within the Democratic Party are defending that kind of behavior and saying that nothing went nothing nothing wrong and nothing untoward happened. It's gross and it should not be going on. And they should they should wind down the foundation. Can I also I think they're going to do that. But can I also say that we've we've been focusing on like corrupt regimes and dictators and that kind of thing. Corporations also play a big role in the in the Clinton Foundation universe. Uh, and I've sort of always characterized the Clinton Foundation as one of those places where our beloved brands can do a lot of karma laundering uh, by donating to charitable foundations and getting a lot of good PR uh, that covers over or papers over or, or adds to the balance on the other side of the shit they do. This is a problem with big philanthropy more right. generally with the Gates Foundation. Yeah, and know. there's evidence There's evidence that while Clinton was at the State Department, she gave um, uh, benefits to UBS, the bank uh, from, from Switzerland. And I feel like there's attention needs to be paid on the corporate side of this, too. It's not just corrupt regimes, uh, bad actors from around the world that we maybe shouldn't be doing business with. We're talking about also brands here at home and respected corporate brands that have parlayed their ability to uh, provide a, a, a sort of a sort of tiny dollop of charity into big PR coups and enrich their connections to powerful people in government and potentially, obviously, if Hillary Clinton becomes president, those connections remain, whether they wind down the Clinton Foundation or not. So one of the things you should look to for the AP to do is to properly identify the people they've put on that list, to actually put out the names, because those are people that journalists can literally track the history of, what they've done, their dealings with Congress, who they've met with, and what they've gained from it, and what they could stand to gain from in the future. And I hope the AP does actually produce the list. I understand why they may not want to do right now, because they're in competition with the rest of us trying to find this stuff out. But I hope that further journalism going down the line focuses on those people and what they've done in the past and what they stand to do in the future, uh, because there's a whole big map of web of corruption you can draw from that. Bye. (laughs) Bye. We'll be right back.
And we're back, and we have a, another great story of corruption and grossness for everybody to chew on. EpiPens. Got one? Need one? Well, guess what? It could come at a dearer cost than normal uh, because of a terrible thing that's happening at the nexus of government corruption and corporate flimflamery. Arthur Delaney is here to tell us about what the fuck happened this week with EpiPens. Oh, well, there's a company called Mylan, and they, uh, over the course of several years, have jacked the price of EpiPens 600%, and people are pissed because this is something you have to buy if your child has severe allergies. Because, Epi- you, you you know, you get stung by a bee or you accidentally eat a peanut. Go into anaphylactic shock. Yeah, you could, use die, the- you could freaking right. die. And the EpiPen- so you carry an EpiPen, you jam it into your thigh. Yeah. Zach Carter, by the way, joining Arthur. Oh, sorry. And, and yeah, I never heard of Zach. You jam it into your thigh, and then you don't die. So it's a good drug. It does a it has a real good, real you know social good here. It's life saving, but it's the same drug that it was in two thousand seven. Yeah. And somehow the price has gone up five or six hundred percent. Just to just to make something pointedly clear, this this product has also been one that over the course of many years, public schools have become required to have. Uh, in stock in their school nurse department. Yeah, the company has lobbied to change the laws to to make it so that these are in all the so schools. So public schools have to procure these things, too, in many instances. Yeah, and you have to buy them in a two-pack. So they've done all these things that have hmm. made it, that happen to be so, more profitable. So you have a captive customer base and a unique product. I wonder what might happen to the price so, of that product. So there's been so much outrage over this massive price hike. It's now like $500 Per pen. And what was if you don't it before? Have insurance. What was it before? About a hundred. About a hundred. So you know, members of Congress are calling for oversight. Uh, you know, the Obama administration said they're you know the company's greedy, but of course they're doing nothing because <laughs> they don't do anything. And the Clinton campaign denounced the price increases. Right. It's which... just like with Martin Shkreli and yeah. his uh, uh, you know Im- immune system helping drug that yes. he. Uh, so listen to listen to Mylan CEO Heather Bresch in an interview on CNBC. So the fr- look, no one's more frustrated than me. I've been in but this you're business ra- you're for the one twenty-five raising years. The price, though, how can you be frustrated? My frustration is there's a list price of six oh eight. There is a system. There are I laid out that there are four or five hands that the product touches, and companies that it goes through before it ever gets to that patient at the counter. No one everybody should be frustrated. I am hoping that this is an inflection point for this country. Our health care is in a crisis. Now, here's a fun fact about Heather Brush. Who wants to tell everyone the fun fact about Heather Brush? It's a really fun fact. You guys are going to have so much fun with this. It's so much fun. Her dad is a guy uh, named Joe Manchin, who is a Democratic senator from West Virginia. Oh, yeah. Yeah, how about that? So that you know may have been helpful. I mean, there's nothing automatically evil about that. But, it's, but but there is something that's sort of aesthetically appropriate because the reason that these drug companies can charge these absurd prices is because the federal government grants them monopolies. They either do that by granting them patents, which say explicitly nobody else is allowed to do anything with this, or in the case of of Mylan and, and EpiPen, uh, by having a pretty lousy 
sort of generic drug approval system, which has prevented generics from coming to, to the market. So the reason Mylan is able to just jack up the price is not because, oh, they had to spend so much money lobbying the government and marketing, as Heather Bresch just suggested in that clip. Um, it's because they just can. They have no competitors. They then, just can do it. I think what's um, uh, illustrative about this is that she talks about, in order to deflect this criticism, all the different things that go into the creation of the product, the different hands that touch it, you know, development, uh, selling to pharmacies, it's it's nonsense. Yeah. It's it's just to distract you from the fact that the price went, went up, up for no fivefold. reason. Um, but, you know, the, the fact that she's also the daughter of a senator also speaks to the way this matter is going to be treated by Congress. When Martin Screlly pissed the world off, they dragged his ass into Congress and read him the riot act. And they weren't they they didn't treat him with kid gloves, um, even though I don't think that a lot of the people who who interrogated him really, truly knew what they were talking about when they were doing so. But you should expect, I believe, Heather Bresch to be treated a lot more lightly by Congress, if at all. Well, I, they've been putting out some harsh statements. I mean, the Mansion uh, Senate office has said like, we don't we don't we're not Christ, commenting on this right now. Harsh statements are the easiest currency. Well, in she's Washington. being she is being summoned to the Hill. Okay, well, to make then, a, a Shkreli like appearance. Well, that's the proving ground for all of this. But here's the thing: there's there are federal policies which make this happen, and everybody can scream bloody murder every time a pharmaceutical company abides by the law and exploits it to screw people over. But nobody actually wants to change the law. And in fact, the Obama administration and most of the Republican establishment want to make this problem worse by pushing through the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is a big trade deal, which creates longer and stronger drug monopolies in the developing world, which will also increase, create upward pressure on pricing in the United States. That's, and they most recently did this with Obamacare. Yes. What part, part of Obamacare, in fact, <laughs> is this interesting sort of detente between the administration and the pharmaceutical industry where they say, hey, you know how, you know, Kathleen Sebelius, who's the head of Health and Human Services, um, when she was governor of Kansas, she had this cool program where senior citizens, if they wanted to get prescription drugs from Canada where they cost like, you know, a tenth as much as they do in the United States, right. they could just do that. They could just order them. So if and, you're and, and the Obama administration said we will stop doing stuff like that if the pharmaceutical <laughs> companies will just please go along with Obamacare. Please. Right. So so essentially the administration has been doing this letting giving pharma a carte blanche since since it got into office, basically because they didn't lobby against Obamacare. It's great that they didn't lobby against Obamacare. Is it great that they have <laughs> these monopolies over life saving drugs? Mm, so not really. If, so you're the little guy. You know, you're not rich. You're out there on Main Street. Which party's got your back? Nobody. Yeah, yeah nobody. <laughs> nobody. One of the things, you know, the Clinton campaign, like I said, put out a statement about that. She, It's been characterized as she's demanded that they reduce the price. And other people have said, we demand that you reduce the price of this drug. This is bad. Even Chuck Grassley says, this is bad. The price should be lower. She make the lower. Uh, I feel like... <laughs> Like legislators in these instances and policymakers and politicians in instances have been sort of been dragged right up to the line of a revelation about what should happen. These guys are all sort of demanding the price go down, but their appeal is basically out of the kindness of your heart and decency, bring the price down. You you being Heather Brush 
yes, only. Yes, Heather, yes, Heather Bresh only. In this one instance, bring the price down. I'm looking for some to maybe make the very next step in the logic of what they're saying. These legislatures have the instinct to say it would be politically good for me to demand the price go down. They haven't yet figured out we have consolidated political power and can pass laws. <laughs> what am I going to do? I'm only in Congress. <laughs> create a, create a, and I'm just like, I'm just like, what's the obvious solution here? What's the obvious solution here? And here's the hint. All your friends in Canada have figured it out. Well, here, here's and could the, what could the e- Obama administration do by itself if it wanted to? E- even even without without passing new laws about intellectual property, uh, in a case like like what we're seeing with the EpiPen and Myelin, there's an agency called the Federal Trade Commission, which is designed to protect consumers against anti-competitive practices by monopolistic organizations. Right. The FTC could just lower the price. They could just say this is a problem. They can they can regulate the pricing. They can force Mylan to be broken up into different companies. They can force them to divest their rights of to to distribute EpiPens. They can do all sorts of things. The FTC could just fix this now if they wanted to. But they don't want to. No. Almost as if they're a compromised agency. It's almost like we don't enforce antitrust laws in the United States anymore. <laughs> I mean, aside from the intellectual property issues here. There, this this is a clear case of EpiPen being too big to fail, and <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> as we yeah. say in the banking world, and and there's an agency that's designed to deal with that, and and it's it's time for them to do their job. All right, nobody's more frustrated than me. <laughs> correct, correct. No, um, it would be correct if it was nobody's more frustrated than I. No one is more frustrated than he. Yes, no one is more frustrated than Arthur. I think we've established that. And everything else is fucked up. So use your power, Congress, to actually do the right thing. And we'll be right back. And welcome back. Hey, joined once again by Arthur Delaney. Hey. And coming to us over the phone, one of our favorite people, Rye, and always on the mark, we have Tim Black, the host of the Tim Black Show, which is a conveniently named show. They made the show and they found the Tim Black and he's good. Tim Black, welcome. Welcome to So That Happened. Welcome back to So That Happened. Hey, man. Thank you guys for having me once again. I appreciate it. Much love, Jason and Arthur. All right. We're glad to have you. So, uh... 
the last time we talked, I think we were just getting into the 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 not the nominations were now set in stone, and so this this race that we've been watching has had a little bit of time to breathe. Uh, I think that it's uh, been obviously this guy scary or this woman scary at the as far as the top two major candidates have been back and forth. We've seen uh, some traction gained by third party uh, people in the polls, both Jill Stein and. Uh, Gary Johnson have started to congeal a little bit of support, maybe something to build on as this race is kind of like opened up a little bit. We've got a little breathing room. What do you think is going on, Tim? Man, it's, it's historical, man. This is a, uh, this is great. I like the fact that we got more options. We got more people to continue the conversation. I'm, I'm not going to say I'm in favor of Gary Johnson, but I like the fact that he's out there. That's right. Give it to him. Make the Republicans work for it. Make the Democrats work for it. Uh, same thing for Jill Stein. I gotta admit, I'm really feeling the love. I'm feeling her campaign of policies and what she's all about. So I think it's, this is good for democracy, good for the people. So, uh, Tim Black, when we last spoke, maybe a month ago, you were favoring Jill Stein, but you weren't shutting the door on Hillary Clinton. You said you'd listen to what she has to say and you were willing to be convinced that she is as progressive as she has, says. Has she, has she done it? Has she done it? <laughs> has she made the case? Emphatic. No, she hasn't done it, man. She hasn't. Like, she hasn't won me over. She's just. Uh, she's just Hillary, man. She's gonna be stay. She's gonna stay. Uh, just doing. Uh, I mean, look, man, we got all these emails dropping on the uh, Clinton Foundation. That's not good. That's not a good thing. We got people up here with the rumors about her health. I'm looking at stuff about concussions and other, I don't know what's going on with her, you know. Um, you know, I'm, I'm looking at Trump. I'm, I'm wondering what's up with Trump and, and her. And, and Jill's side just seems more steady for, when it comes to policy, she's more alive with, it's just a natural segue from Bernie to Jill. It's a little bit more left. But it's still in the same wheelhouse. But Hillary hasn't done it for me, man. I'm sorry to report. Now that makes a lot of sense. But the one thing uh, surprised me the the Hillary Clinton health problem story, ha- you know, has come out of the right wing fever swamp. Do you believe that that she's got undisclosed health problems? Like she's like can't even stand up and is like a weekend at Bernie's dead body that is being marionetted through the campaign. Love that analogy, man. No, I don't think she's obviously she's alive. It's her people who it's the people who try to testify against her who aren't. Bam. But no, <laughs> man. <laughs> but no, um there there are some questions. Now to be fair, both Trump and Hillary have released less information than any other candidates in recent history regarding their health and if and if the advanced age of seventy for Trump and sixty eight for Clinton respectively, that's not good. I mean we want to know more about these people and you know what's gonna happen because I definitely don't want a pitch as a VP and nor do nor do I want a milk toast uh Mike, uh, Mike Kane. Well, to defend Donald Trump, his his doctor did say that he was the most healthiest human that ever lived, or some nonsense in that. He was he was an Adonis Specific. that <laughs> born from the sun and sent to Earth. Um, so you you've been paying attention. I, I would say you probably you've had your eye on the third party game probably pretty intensely, um, and you probably I don't know if you've. I don't know if you've ever sort of read the way uh, your Beltway pundits try to talk about third parties. Um, it seems to me that what always happens and what's happening with Jill Stein and what's happening with with uh, 
with uh, Gary Johnson is that we find that there are people who feel they've been underserved by the current party system that go looking for alternatives. And I don't know if you've ever noticed this phenomenon. I was wondering if you had anything wry or interesting to say about it. But I found that like when your big media pundits talk about third parties and the need for third parties, uh, they there's sort of this generic agreement with maybe people at street level who notice the two-party system isn't serving them anymore. But it seems to me that here in the Beltway, when, we, when people talk about third parties, they always sort of seem to imagine the kind of people that would naturally accrue to a third party, and they always tend to be the most overserved people in politics already. Like, we had... Um, the former editor-in-chief of Politico uh, talk about there needs to be an innovation party where Silicon Valley people should congeal. And I was just like, Silicon Valley people are getting all they want out of politics right now. They don't need a party. What do you think is the natural reason for why there's like such a divide over like Beltway groupthink on third parties and the way people actually behave when they encounter the two-party system we're in? Wow, man. You know, uh, as far as the, the, the Beltway gateway, uh, I don't know, man. I think that there are, there's always going to be a hunger for different voices, uh, especially when I consider the fact that we're looking at the party system as it stands. It's To me, to me, it's like Republican, Republican light. I'm sorry, guys. I, I just don't feel like we, we really have a liberal wing anymore within our system. They've moved too too far to the right. So I think that exists. But as, as far as like uh, what our Silicon Valley folks need, hey, they've got money. So if you got money, your money's always going to talk. They get pretty much invested in the candidate based on the way our system's set up and, and, and get some type of exposure to the issues that concern them. But what concerns me about third parties, when I look at particularly for the Green Party, when I look at these guys, I'm watching their debates. I'm seeing people with seashells on their shirts and uh, uh, <laughs> I'm like, come on, guys, we need to be a little bit more mainstream. So uh, there's some work that needs to be done on the third party side where they need to come into the light, so to speak, so they could be more palatable for people who would vote normally Republican or Democrat. I don't think the Libertarians have that problem, but definitely <laughs> the Green Party they do. But they did choose two of the, even though Ajamu Barak and Joe Stein's VP uh, does have some more, I would say, um, outspoken standpoints. Um, he's still more palatable than many of the, many of the other uh, candidates you could have chosen. At the uh, after the conventions in which you know Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump locked it up, Jill Stein had some unfavorable headlines over comments on vaccines, and I, she didn't make her. I mean, she was not outright saying they cause autism, but it seemed like she was pandering to that idea. I love, I love the fact that they tried to make this an issue because it shows that she was getting a little bit of traction, man. They got to push back. Jill Stein's not anti-vax. She's a doctor. She just believes that the people who approve your drugs should be the same people who make your drugs and sell your drugs. Like, you need to break that up a little bit. The people that make your Tonka truck didn't also approve it as safe for the kids. So that's sort of like what we have. We have the, uh, the you know, where I come from, the... The, the wolves don't guard, guard the hen house, man, and that's sort of the setup that we have currently. And we should just be able to make sure we have a viable third entity, an entity outside the body that's able to look and say, hey, is this really what kids need? Is the schedule correct? What about the you know consecutive nature of the of the vaccinations? Is this rigorous you know program? Is this better for the kids? And, and what are the results from that? Different countries do it different ways. So we should be able to examine that. But I don't believe she's anti-vax. I spoke to her twice. I've interviewed, interviewed Jill Starr twice. And in my last meeting, I asked her, and she emphatically said, no, she just want to protect our rights and look out for the people.
Fair enough. The um, one of the th- more interesting things that I found uh, happening in this race is that uh, <clears throat> we definitely see that Donald Trump has like caused a cleavage in the Republican base between the kind of Republicans who sort of like chase corporate power, your your, uh, your Chamber of Commerce Republicans, and suddenly people who now identify as conservative but do see a purpose in government redistributing money and government programs. Blah, blah, blah. Um, I wonder if there's a similar force happening on the left where there are now louder voices both inside the party and adjacent to the party in the form of disaffected liberals um, that are like urging the Democratic Party to stop chasing after the professional class and satisfying their needs ahead of all others uh, and to stop trying to get corporate America to quote unquote, like them as much as they appear to like the Republicans. Do you feel like in some short term, there could be some kind of transformation or are we going to just get through another election and settle back into the old tropes? Oh man, this is my hope upon hopes, my brother. This is what I'm looking for. I want to move like, you know, it's better to use a house that's already built if you can do that. You know, it's better to build it from the floor up. I know there are people who who fancy themselves. They want to go destroy the Democratic Party. If, if, if Look, it's been around for a while. It's going, to, it's going to continue to exist. We just need to refurbish it. Let's put some new carpet in there. Let's knock out these, you know, let's, knock, you know, let's, let's spray for termites. Let's, let's, let's get some paint out here. But no, I, I, I agree with you 100%, man. What we need to do is hopefully influence the party to make new decisions. Bernie Sanders has ignited people across the country, across the globe, actually. And I think that's good for the party. I think in the end, it will be a positive thing. Now we have what we have to do is we have to continue to hold not only, you know, we talk a lot about presidents, but it's also about down tickets. Folks. Yeah. I'm watching Florida. I'm watching Florida. I talked to Tim Canova. I had him on the show. He's a good guy. Yeah, he is, man. And we need to support down-ticket folks like Tim Canova and, and, and help them, you know, win their seats so that we can fundamentally change what goes on not only in the, in the White House but on the state and local level. Yeah, yeah, good, good, good advice. People should listen to Tim Black, everybody. And you can do so by listening to Tim Black show on it's on uh, YouTube, right? Yeah, just go to TimBlackTV.com and you'll find everything, my people. Boom, boom, boom. Tim Black. Thanks for being on. And we look forward to having you back, man. That's it, man. I love you guys. You take care. You too. Uh, to the people. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Christine Canetta. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week, we were joined by Tim Black of The Tim Black Show, as well as Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, and Elise Foley. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening. We miss you already.
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.